respond fast if it's a vowel. That explains why two vowels are the fastest, as each hemisphere knows this rule. It also easily explains why two consonants were the slowest. In that case, each brain was waiting to see if the other was going to opt for a fast response. When that didn't occur, each side could independently conclude that both sides must have seen a consonant. In the conflict conditions, while one side may have wanted to respond quickly, the other, through various subcortical strategies, was trying to go more slowly. Jeff and I were convinced we were right, but at the time, Sajan had her own views. Within a month, she had the study published in Nature. We sent her other data that we had collected on patient VP that supported our view. She saw it differently, so we decided to disagree about it and let it go. Over the next few years, however, the view was trumpeted by Sajan and others, including several studies from the Sperry lab. While Sajan acknowledged a few years later that the study she did on JW was flawed, she had gone on to test some of the West Coast split-brain subjects and felt overall that her ideas were confirmed. So seemingly out of nowhere, it was now commonplace to see the argument that higher-order information did transfer between the hemispheres, but specific details of perceptual information did not. What was going on? It was time to do a thorough study, and this was a new graduate student moment for Sandra Seymour at Dartmouth. It wound up taking a few years to complete the work, but it was a beautiful and complete study. Seymour reviewed all of the published data on all of the split-brain patients in the United States. She determined that only two patients were providing support for the so-called reunified view of the split-brain, cases LB and NG from the California series. Case LB was problematic for many reasons, one of which was that it was not clear if his callosum was completely sectioned. MRI results were mixed. On cross-field comparisons of perceptual information, he scored more like normal than did the split-brain patients. As a result, and before trying to understand the puzzling results from LB and NG, Seymour decided to rerun the East Coast patients, JW, VP, and DR, on all the tests run by Sajan. It was Sajan's work that represented some of the strongest claims that subcortical pathways were responsible for the interhemispheric integration of higher-level abstract information. In fact, she argued that it is the very abstract nature of the information that made the interhemispheric comparison possible. Sozant reasoned that the subcortical pathways were less efficient at, or incapable of, transfer or cross-comparison of stimulus identity. In short, she reported that performance might be compromised when simple physical identity was emphasized, whereas performance improved when the same stimuli were being compared for meaning. I still don't fully understand how Sajan came to that way of thinking. At any rate, Seymour retested the East Coast patients using the exact tests Sajan had used on the two key Caltech patients. She also tested Sajan's proposal that abstract representations, but not sensory information, could transfer in the split brain. On this test, she required the patient to compare numerical values represented by a digit in one visual field and a group of dots that added up or not to the digit value in the other visual field. This task could be performed only if the abstract idea, that is, the notion of, say, seven, were shared between the hemispheres. In the end, we simply could not replicate the results reported by Sajan for the West Coast patients, LB, NG, and to some extent AA. So what was going on? Indeed, several other researchers were beginning to report interhemispheric interactions testing the Caltech patients. 
this was even more puzzling, since, as already pointed out, their surgery involved more interhemispheric disconnections than did that of the East Coast patients. Put simply, the East Coast patients appeared more disconnected, not less, even though their secondary commissure, the anterior commissure, was intact. How could this all be? We tried everything we could think of in the perceptual realm. For example, we tried to see if VP could compare two simple wave patterns, one presented to each side of the visual midline. Nope, no deal. She couldn't cross-compare two non-nameable symbols, a very simple task. JW couldn't do this kind of task either. And P.S. had failed to compare words or pictures many, many times. To begin to understand the likely explanation, it should be kept in mind that the ability of split-brain patients to look as if they were integrated develops over time. Immediately after surgery, and for some time, the seeming ability to transfer information across their disconnected brains is clearly not present. The effects only come from the highly practiced patients after years of testing, or living with someone for years, as I have already pointed out. When this kind of yoking happens between two people, no one is surprised or mystified. Now imagine conjoined twins, say, conjoined at the neck. Yes, two completely wonderful human beings coming out of the same neck, like two flowering roses coming off the same stem. Such cases exist and have been well documented. The twins Abigail and Brittany Hensel, now in their twenties, who grew up on a farm in Minnesota and graduated college with teaching degrees in 2012, have two quite different personalities. They are unquestionably two separate mental entities but also reveal the myriad of ways they cross-communicate to keep purposeful actions of their shared body, such as playing softball, integrated. Let's say the conjoining is at a higher level. Basically, the split-brain surgery has disjoined one mental system and made it two. One of the systems, the left brain, is very bright and creative. The other also has a set of skills, but they are different. Nonetheless, two distinct mental systems that were formerly joined are going to have to learn how to get along without having the direct neural communicative networks that they previously enjoyed. They are going to have to learn a lot about cueing, about nonverbal communications, about how, in fact, most humans live their days, tipping off others as to their desires, frustrations, and impending actions by subtle, very subtle cueing. There is not too much argument about this reality. Our argument was that this cueing skill markedly improves over time, making it appear as if the split-brain patients were reconnecting after many years of looking so different. For lack of a better phrase, we came to call these strategies part of a readiness response. Thus, the positive interhemispheric results that are observed when performing value comparisons between numbers shown to one hemisphere and dot arrays of same or different amounts shown to the other can be explained by a cueing system. Each hemisphere independently and without any knowledge of the stimulus presented to the other has a disposition to respond in a manner that is determined by the magnitude of the digit presented to it. The hemisphere more disposed to respond then initiates the motor output. In other words, if each hemisphere decides to act, if the number is high, it is possible to obtain 78% accuracy by simply applying a strategy based on the digit in a single visual field. That is, if the digit is less than four, guess that the other side is higher. If it is greater than six, guess that this side is higher, and if it is five, simply guess. We ran this test on JW, and he hit this level of accuracy and then told us he was using this exact strategy. No communication between the hemispheres, just a cooperative strategy.
Endless variations of these experiments exist, but the point is clear. Two mental systems forced to share the same resources work it out. It took two very bright and talented young scientists to get it all straight. Seymour and Reuter Lorenz. Brain Mechanisms of Attention Just as colleagues were ready, willing, and able to visit Hanover to carry out studies on our patients, we, scientists and patients, were ready to travel to far-off places for testing. This was especially true for places like Steve Hilliard's lab at the University of California, San Diego, in La Jolla, with its unique natural setting. As I mentioned earlier, Hilliard used event-related potentials, the complex brain imaging procedure that allows one to study both the timing and, to some extent, the actual place in the brain that generates particular brain waves. When he first arrived at UCSD, Steve was housed in the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, on the beach. As the years rolled by, the university built a more traditional building up on the bluffs, and Steve lost his coveted space. It is there that I met his hotshot student, Steve Luck. Luck describes his first testing session with J.W., who had accompanied us out west. My very first experience with a split-brain patient was with J.W. in an experiment on visual search. For reasons that I still don't understand, people in the Hilliard lab thought I was fully competent to test J.W. with absolutely no prior experience. I brought him into the lab, sat him in the chamber, and explained the task. I said something like this. In this task, the target is a rectangle formed by a red square on top of a blue square. The distractors have a blue square on top of a red square. Your job is to press the left button if you see the target on the left side of the screen and to press the right button if you see the target on the right side of the screen. In other words, press with the left hand if you see red on top, blue on bottom on the left side and press with the right hand if you see red on top, blue on bottom on the right side. I then asked if he understood and he said sure. He was obviously a pro so I figured he understood perfectly. Well, his left hemisphere, which was the hemisphere that was talking to me, did understand the task. But this was way too syntactically complex for his right hemisphere. So when I started up the task, his right hand pressed the button every time the target appeared on the right side. But he didn't make any button presses with his left hand. I stopped the task and went back into the chamber. I explained the task again, but all the while he protested that he understood the task. I left the chamber, started the task again, and J.W. again did perfectly with his right hand, left hemisphere, but made no responses with his left hand, right hemisphere. I stopped the task and tried explaining again. He again said he understood, and was starting to get a little peeved that this kid was trying to explain something that he, as a professional subject, clearly understood. But again his left hand did not respond. And then I suddenly realized that I was trying to explain this complicated task verbally to a hemisphere that had limited language abilities. I went back into the chamber and I said, please be patient with me while I try this one more time. I started up the task, and every time the target appeared on the left, I pointed at the target and at his left hand saying, blue top left hand, blue top left hand. He kept protesting that he understood, and then suddenly a funny aha look came over his face. He then said, Okay, I'm sure I understand now. I left the chamber, started up the task, and both hemispheres did perfectly from that point onward. We got some great data that led to a nature paper 
and I learned how to explain a task to the right hemisphere of a split-brain patient, a hemisphere with poor syntactic ability. Steve was just getting his feet wet in science, but it was already clear he would be a star. In fact, most of Hilliard's students have become scientific leaders. His standards were impeccably severe, and his insights were frequent. Before Steve Luck entered Hilliard's lab, Marta Kutis, Ron Mangan, Marty Waldorf, Bob Knight, Helen Neville, and others, all the household names in neuroscience today, had come under his tutelage. Collaborating with any of them always led to solid research. Still, each was a novice when it came to studying patients. All had cut their teeth on examining normal college undergraduates, who had allowed one to talk as Luck described. It took experience to learn how to describe what you wanted to two very different disconnected hemispheres. The only way to learn was by doing it, trial by fire. As you may be coming to understand, our patients were patient exceedingly. Understanding human attention is one of the grand challenges of modern cognitive neuroscience. In many ways, the best and brightest researchers have been committed to various aspects of the problem. The field was beginning to understand how attention could be directed to particular points in space in order to enhance the sensory moment, or how it could be directed away from one conversation to hear another conversation. Attention was thought of as a beacon of light swinging through the rich landscape of our sensory experience, focusing on the specifics of the scene we are currently engaged with. It was the great enhancer to both perception and cognition. Naturally, we began to wonder, does each hemisphere of a split-brain patient have its own attentional system, or is it shared? Could one hemisphere attend to the left while, at the same time, the other could attend to the right side of space? If you have an intact callosum, you cannot do this at all. Once again, it was Jeff Holtzman who had laid the groundwork. In many ways, the problem of attention seemed mercurial. Either half-brain of a split-brain patient was able to direct attention to places in its sensory world. What surprised us? was that each half could also direct attention to specific places in the part of the sensory world it did not have direct access to, places that were in the other half-brain's bailiwick. This exception to the rule that spatial attention could flow across the disconnected brain seemed weird, so we wondered if it were possible for each half-brain to direct its attention to a different place at the same time. Would that be a non-starter? Was it like, say, a tight end being asked to be at two different places at the same time? Apparently it was. Patty Reuter-Lorenz nailed this important idea at Dartmouth. The attentional system was unifocal. In short, the two disconnected hemispheres could not prepare for events in two spatially disparate locations. Something was still glued together in the split brain. There seemed to be some sharing going on of a common resource. For lack of a better word, let's call that resource oomph energy, the stuff that is drawn upon to do anything. This idea led to a further refinement of the different kinds of attention the brain calls upon to do its work. In an earlier study that Jeff and I did at Cornell, we showed that J.W. would react faster from one hemisphere if the other hemisphere was working on an easy problem instead of a hard problem. We supposed that in order to solve a hard problem, more resources would be drawn off than would be to solve an easy problem. When the hard problem was being shown, the opposite hemisphere would, as a consequence, be slower to respond to the different task it was being asked to solve at the same time. Somehow resources were common to both hemispheres. We thought we had it confirmed. There was this nagging feeling, however, that we hadn't fully characterized what was going on. 
From my Caltech days on, I had been showing that split-brain monkeys seemed able to respond accurately to more information presented in a brief flash than normal monkeys were. At one level, it seemed like the animal's resources had been expanded and improved, not lessened. Jeff and I had found a similar result with human patients. What indeed was going on? This is the test we'd run. Imagine looking at a point in space, or even better, a point on your laptop. On each side of the fixated point, there is a box divided into nine cells, three up, three across, like a tic-tac-toe grid. Now imagine the experimenter is about to present to you a sequence of four X's, distributed one after the other in four of the nine cells, which you are to remember. Further, this memory test will be presented in both visual fields at the same time. I'm kidding you, right? Nope, that is what we did, and we did it in an easy way and a hard way. In the easy way, the nine-cell box in each visual field had the same sequential pattern presented, so we called that the redundant condition. In the hard condition, the box in each visual field got a different pattern of sequences. Trust me, that is a hard condition. After either the easy or the hard stimulus sequence had been presented, another pattern of four X's, a probe, came on, which either matched the pattern in the field that had just been observed or did not match the pattern in that field. All the subjects had to do was hit a button marked yes or no, meaning yes, the probe was identical to what it had just seen, or no, it was not. Non-split subjects whipped through the easy trials. They were fast and accurate. Even though there were eight different X's coming on quickly, four in each visual field, they were easy to apprehend because the X's were coming on in the same sequence and in the same pattern in each visual field. They were redundant. Because of that, it is easy to do. J.W. found it easy to do, too. The hard trials were a different matter. It stopped even smarty-pants undergraduates in their tracks. It was too much information presented in a brief time to grasp. Robert Bazell, the distinguished NBC science reporter, was visiting during one of our tests and explained, after seeing the flurry of stimuli, what on earth was that? Clearly, the normal memory system couldn't handle it, and accurate responses fell to chance. Not with J.W. When the mixed trials came along, with each hemisphere receiving four different X's at four different positions in the nine-cell box, J.W. held on to the information and kept on getting the correct answers. It was like he had two independent processors, which made for better scores when combined. It looked like the common unifocal attentional system, which we thought we had captured in our previous studies, couldn't explain this remarkable increased capacity. The cool thing about science is that explanatory models, which have been proposed to explain mechanisms, can change, to the disappointment or enthusiasm of the researcher. As a scientist, you need to be flexible. If new data disprove your belief, you have to change your belief. The scientific field of attention is peppered with truly great and congenial researchers. They are happy to adjust their ideas to fit new data. Holtzman, Reuter Lorenz, Luck, Mangan, and Kudis were about to change split-brain research. Having these young experts, and of course one of the doyens of attention research, Hilliard, on the case was, as they say in Texas, High cotton. From another angle, it was plenty as well. When running a broad-gauge lab with only so many slots, only so much money, 
and with so many issues to be studied, it becomes necessary to limit who else joins in the effort. Those are the plans, and that is the management theory. Then Alan Kingstone walked into my life, a Canadian student of another famous attention researcher, Ray Klein, of Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Great, I mumbled to myself. I need this like the proverbial hole in the head. Kingstone warmly tells the story like this. Michael Posner pointed me towards Michael Gazanica. So in the blissful ignorance bestowed upon the very young and those that hold PhDs, I picked up the telephone, used my dime, and called Michael Gazanaga. He answered, and deduced in about one millisecond, that I didn't know anything about the brain and its relation to human cognition. The conversation went something like this. Mike, do you know anything about the brain? This, I was to learn, is classic Michael. He cut straight to the heart of an issue, or, as was often the case where I was concerned, the weakness of an issue. Alan, no. This was not going the way I had hoped. Mike, don't you think that's a problem? Alan, no, I'll learn. Mike, come on down. Let's see what you've got to offer. Truly, that was it. A short time later, I found myself flying to Montreal, then catching a train on a beautiful spring morning through the magical countryside of Vermont down into White River Junction. From there, it's just a ten-minute cab ride to Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And by the time I stepped out of the cab and onto that remarkable Ivy League Dartmouth campus, a campus that manages to blend the old and new together in such a seamless manner, I was completely and absolutely sold. And I began to suspect the truth, that my life had already begun to change forever and for the better. The next day I set off for Mike's lab. At that time, in the early 1990s, Mike and his team were conducting their research in a white-clabbered, side-gabled house that had been built by Mrs. A. Pike in 1874. There at Pike House, I met several of the future stars in cognitive neuroscience. People like Hattie Reuter-Lorenz and Ron Mangan, and of course, Michael Gazaniga himself. He had me give a little talk to his group, and then whisked me off to an elegant French restaurant where he offered me a spot in his lab. Say yes and come do your thing, was his offer. I accepted, of course. We shook hands, and that was that. It really only took about three minutes to decide to hire him, and it only took him two seconds to accept the offer. He had that glint in his eyes, the energy level of a buzzsaw, and the smarts of the rest of the group. He also had a thirst for new problems, new angles, new adventures. So I changed my theory on the spot and decided we needed to dig into attention issues more deeply. Attention Redux Steve Luck was busy in San Diego puzzling about what split-brain patients were capable of doing and how they did it. He carried out an amazingly clever experiment that, at one level, confirmed the idea that they were capable of enhanced information processing capacity. How could that be? Luck went after the problem by applying a well-established test from the experimental attention literature. He took an array of blue and red squares that were stuck together with the blue square on top and spread a bunch of them out on a computer display screen. Each time he presented the array of squares, he snuck in one square pair that was different. It had the red square on top, while the yoked blue square was on the bottom. The squares in the array were called distractors, and the single red-blue square was called the target. The task was simple. Find the target. 
When neurologically intact subjects do this task, an interesting and consistent behavior occurs. As more distractors are added, it takes longer to find the target. In fact, our response time goes up in a reliable way. Every time two more distractor squares are added to the distractor array, it takes another 70 milliseconds to respond. The distractors slow down our search to find the one target. This happens like clockwork. It also doesn't matter where in the left or right visual fields the added distractors appear. Split-brain patients respond in a dramatically different manner. When the extra distractors are added to a single visual field, the patients, not surprisingly, take longer to find the target, like everyone else. However, when that same number of added distractors is spread out, such that each field gets half of them, the overall reaction time is much faster when compared to everyone else. In other words, each disconnected hemisphere seems to have its own attentional scanning machinery, and each can go to work simultaneously and independently of the other half-brain. Luck did these studies on JW and also on the Caltech patient LB. This was an exciting finding, which was well-documented and robust. It was beginning to look like there were many components to the attention system. It looked like some aspects of attention were involved with scanning a visual scene for particular information. Other parts, which were associated with cognitive work, were still connected, presumably through lower brain systems. Kingstone pushed on these ideas and made them even more interesting. He wondered if each hemisphere was doing its scanning of the arrays using the same kind of strategy. After all, the left hemisphere was the smart, verbal hemisphere, while the right was specialized for grouping visual parts into sensible holes. Maybe their underlying attentional mechanisms served up their discoveries of the visual world by different means. Allen made the target selection process more difficult. He added even more distractors, such that when using the low-level automatic systems described above, we humans begin to crack. We are smart animals, so we guide our attention through cognitive strategies. In a word, we start using top-down, that is, goal-directed and guided ways to sort through all the information. Let's say the task is, find Louise. One strategy might be, look for big hair. Alan discovered that we can only do that in the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere is stuck doing the searches in the standard automatic way. Look at everyone until you find Louise. All of this work led us back to an even stronger view about split-brain patients. Not only were the half-brains separate, those puppies were also different. Brain Prints and the Swiss Connection The lab was bubbling with activity. In part, this was because it is not in my nature to focus on one topic. When I was growing up, 70 years ago, there was no such disease as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, so I couldn't have had it. Now, as I look back, I wonder. My mother always said that I had ants in my pants. Drilling deep on only one topic is a popular way to spend one's life, but it's not for me. When working with patients and the ephemeral topics of attention, which requires from hundreds to thousands of boring trials of having patients react to simple lights, my mind became inattentive. I wanted to do different things, more closely connected to basic neuroscience. We had settled into Pike House, but we were bursting at the seams. If we were going to expand, how? Pike House had an outdoor porch. I asked if the medical school would enclose it for additional office space. I called the contractor who had built my new house, had him give a bid, and the provost quickly agreed to it all. 
Over the years, I had learned that if you present a problem to an administrator, also present the solution. Then it's only money, and usually administrators can handle small budget items. The job was finished so quickly, that's how you actually make money in construction, that the college took a shine to my builder, Rusty Estes, and used him frequently thereafter. Soon, however, we were once again overcrowded. More grants were rolling in, postdocs were flocking, and our new graduate program was filling up with students. The medical school started to get more interested in our enterprise and moved us over to some space in the actual medical school building. The walls were god-awful yellow tiles, only matched in ugliness by the well-used linoleum floors. That actually was the first offer. I said I wasn't leaving our beloved Pike House for that. Okay, said the dean, and after a new paint job and new carpet, over we went. It turned out to be a delightful space and further energized the lab. We can now expand the lab's pet project, Mapping the Human Brain. As I already mentioned, my appointment was in psychiatry. For bureaucratic reasons, a Ph.D. could have tenure in a medical school department, and psychiatry filled the bill. My professional associations were with the neurologists, and in particular, the neurosurgeons. When I met David Roberts, who is now the chief of neurosurgery at Dartmouth, he was a resident under the neurosurgeon Donald Wilson who launched the Dartmouth Split Brain series. When Wilson tragically died from throat cancer, Dave took over his lead and is now the world's authority on split brain surgery, even though it is rarely done these days. Dave was also a Princeton man. A few years later, I was visiting Princeton on a short sabbatical. My host, George Miller, who had moved from Rockefeller University, suggested we have Dave down to talk about MRI-guided microscopes for neurosurgery operations. It was the dead of winter, but Princeton had called, so Dave answered. He got on the tiny airplane that flies out of Lebanon, New Hampshire, and showed up to talk to the psychology department about his work on the microscope. All I can tell you is that it was one of the best talks I have ever heard, and I have heard a lot of talks. The audience of non-surgeons was mesmerized. For a neurosurgeon, one of the challenges is that although a brain tumor may be visible on an MRI, there is still the problem of finding it in a 3D brain during surgery. Dave's form of brain mapping, using his MRI-guided microscopes to solve this problem, was riveting. Back at the lab, we had been working on our own brain mapping project. We had started it back at Cornell as a passion of Marc Jondes, a graduate student of mine who had joined up with the lab during our Stony Brook days. Mark was an extraordinary talent, driven and smart. He started out building the lab a computer in a suitcase, which in those days deemed it portable, that could help with our studies. He picked up the parts at Tandy Corporation, a.k.a. Radio Shack, figured it all out, and bingo, we were into a form, a very early form of data processing. As it turned out, though, Mark was an anatomist at heart. He came up with the idea of brain mapping, which we enthusiastically called brain prints, sort of like fingerprints. We all were going to have our own unique brain print, another easy-to-say, hard-to-do idea. Mark always saw the possibilities in both science and life more generally. At one point during my time at Cornell, Charlotte and I planned to take a sabbatical leave so that I could write my first book for general readers, The Social Brain. Most sabbaticals last for a year, a time allotment that did not work for me, due to the needs of my family in running a complex lab. I just couldn't be away for such a long stretch of time. I hit upon the idea of splitting it up, 
travel to a place for a month, then return home, then travel again. I mention this in a letter to Mark. Before I knew it, Mark, who had carried out a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Lausanne, had found the perfect Swiss mountain cabin for us in the village of Col, just a cog train ride up the mountain from Montreux, a three-bedroom chalet for $150 a month. We not only booked it, we found ourselves returning to Co for a month each winter for years. At Co, we skied, we worked, we hosted visitors, and we also had the yearly treat of visiting Bill Buckley around the bend in the mountain at Rougemont, where he and his wife wintered each year. During the ten weeks that Bill spent in Rougemont, he managed to write an entire book, maintain his three columns a week, continue to edit National Review, and ski every afternoon after lunch at the Eagle's Nest. Bill once complained that Swiss Air had a rule about flying with dogs, which he found frustrating. There could only be one dog per cabin class, and there were only three classes. The Buckleys had three dogs. This meant that they could not sit together for the flight. Pat, his wife, sat in first class with one dog, Bill in business class with the second dog, and the housekeeper in coach with the third dog. For years, Bill tried everything he could think of to get this federal rule waived. Nothing worked. Ah, I thought to myself, maybe my brain science connections could come to the rescue of this social inconvenience. I mentioned something to Bill, and he looked at me with that yeah-right face. The matter was dropped. As the next season approached, I remembered this story and decided to call Liana Bolis, a neuroscientist and benefactor to the field in dozens of ways. I had written a monograph for her foundation and had attended several superior workshops she had organized, including a trip to China as part of a World Health Organization team to examine neuroscience in China. She was a significant contributor to the Catholic Church in Beijing, which once bound us to listen to a Chinese opera for five hours. More pointedly, she had a significant stake in Swiss Air. I called her to say I had this special American friend who traveled to Zurich all the time from New York and... She said that she had little to do with the operations of the company, but that she would get a manager to call me. In Swiss fashion, the call came through rather quickly. The manager was very polite and amused by my request. I mean, couldn't they, just once, let the Buckleys both sit in either first or business class? He thanked me for my concern for my friend, and after some vague remark, we both let the conversation end. The Buckley's flight took off two weeks later. The following night, I got a call from Bill. Mike, last night in JFK, just before the plane took off, the Swiss Air steward came over to me and asked me to leave my dog in my business class seat and said that he would be fine there and escorted me to an empty first class seat next to Pat. You accomplished what the entire social structure of Gestadt could not, and that includes Roger Moore of James Bond fame. We all had a good chuckle, but I knew brain scientists had just gone up a notch in his estimation. At any rate, by the time we arrived at Dartmouth, the brain mapping project had attracted lots of people in the lab, such as our very own neurologist, Mark Tremel. The idea was to take a patient's MRI scans and cross-section and to ultimately have a computer program automatically read the hundreds of scans and generate, from that data, a flat map of the brain, which could be comprehended, visualized, and measured more easily than a real three-dimensional brain. What surprised us was that one of the psychiatrists, Ron Green, skilled in treating serious mental disorders, 
also took a shine to the project. He started committing hours to the tedious task of tracing the cross-sections. At that time, automatic tracing was not available. Hand-tracing and tissue paper laid over the brain scans by skilled neuroanatomists had to do. It is a beautiful thing to see people who, although they have day jobs, are charged up by an idea and will work endless additional hours on it. This method went on for years, until a bright undergraduate from Cornell, William Loftus, came along. He began to figure out how to do it all on a computer. The U.S. Navy's Office of Naval Research bought us a fancy computer, and Loftus harnessed it for the work. Techniques are important in science. What's more important, however, is using them on important questions. Before developing the brain print, we had determined from MRI scans that the corpus callosums of identical twins were more similar to each other than to unrelated controls. This was one of the first demonstrations that actual brain structures in identical twins were more similar than not. With brain prints, we wanted to extend that idea by carefully mapping the surface of the cortex to see if other specific regions of the brain were more similar in twins. We tried, but we were not able to capture it. In the end, our brain printing process was too laborious, and our subject pool was too thin. That, however, doesn't mean the question wasn't addressed by others. Discovering the similarities and differences of twin brains was taken up by the UCLA Brain Imaging Group, and they firmly established how similar twin brains are, both structurally and functionally, using sophisticated and advanced brain imaging techniques that far surpassed ours. Still, this experience prepared us for a different big science project a few years later. The seeds were laid, but it took about eight years for them to bloom. Only Partial Disconnections, the Semi-Split Mind In some sense, the overall goal of biological research is to strive to make observations more and more specific. The first success of showing the dramatic effect of a full colossal splitting surgery, where basically nothing seemed to cross over between the two half-brains, soon gave way to the question, what if only specific parts of the callosum are sectioned? Or what if specific regions remain after surgery? Both of these issues were always on our minds, and opportunities to study such problems popped up unexpectedly. Classical anatomy of the callosum indicates that the posterior regions of the structure interconnect the visual areas at the back of the brain. As one moves forward, the fibers connecting the parts of the cortex responsible for hearing, touch, and other body sensations and movement become evident. Armed with this knowledge, one would predict that a lesion to the posterior regions of the callosum might cause a problem with the transferring of visual information between the hemispheres. In a way, the idea was that one might see a modality-specific split. That is, such a patient might be visually split but not split when tested in other modalities. Years earlier, I was sitting in my office at NYU when a Brooklyn neurologist called me about a couple of cases. He was following two patients who had had their posterior callosum sectioned as a consequence of a neurosurgical procedure to get at a tumor of the third ventricle, a place in the brain located just below the posterior callosum. He asked if I would like to study the patients. After leaping out of my chair with excitement, all was arranged and led ultimately to a paper that we jointly authored. I love this part of a life in science. A practicing neurologist, 
though a stranger to me, keeps up with the literature, sees some patients in his office who might be of interest to a basic researcher, discusses it with his patient, who agrees, takes the time to find the researcher in the days before the Internet, and then, importantly, participates in a research effort. Who says we are not an altruistic species? These two patients taught us many things. The first case was visually split, just as predicted. His other modalities had been left intact. He also turned out to be one of the minority of people in whom hemisphere dominance is reversed. It was clear from the pattern of his responses that his right hemisphere was dominant for language and speech, while his left was dominant for the usual right hemisphere specialization, such as drawing in three dimensions. One case, one random call, and we were closer to understanding how the parts of the colossum were organized. Over the years, other cases were brought to our attention by clinicians, and they too provided more insight into the organization of the corpus callosum. For example, another patient, E.B., had a slightly more extensive posterior split. As expected from the known anatomy, it seemed to prevent tactile and auditory integration. She also had a remarkable ability to integrate motor information in one direction, from the left to the right brain, but not from the right to the left brain, again suggesting great specificity of connections. After all, where the surgeon actually stops sectioning the callosum is somewhat arbitrary. It makes sense that what information systems get disconnected should vary. These clinical cases, which were presented to us through indirect routes, were enormously interesting. They were made more so because, as a result of the main research program on split-brain patients, we knew what questions to ask. Still, it was two of our star patients who truly illuminated a few secrets of the callosum. J.W.'s callosum had been surgically split in two stages while we were still at Cornell. His posterior callosum was sectioned first. Ten weeks went by before he underwent his second anterior section. This gave us the unique opportunity to examine him before his surgery and then after each successive surgery. Preoperatively, he was completely normal with respect to our tests. The two half-brains were in total communication. John Sittis, who was another one of my ace postdoctoral fellows, Jeff and I examined him again after his posterior callosum had been sectioned. Wilson stopped the surgical section approximately halfway along the callosum, a little farther toward the anterior regions of the callosum than the sections of either of the two clinical patients I just described. According to our standard tests, which carefully examine each modality, J.W. seemed completely disconnected. While that was exciting, we knew that the entire anterior half of his callosum was still intact. Since the posterior half-section seemed to result in the full split-brain syndrome, as we then understood it, we wondered, what on earth is the anterior portion transferring? What were these 100 million or so neurons in the front of the callosum doing? Sittis and Holtzman kept pushing. After we did the routine test of flashing simple pictures to each visual field and determined that J.W. could easily name pictures flashed to the left brain but not pictures flashed to the right brain, we wondered if he could carry out some other kind of cross-integration of information. We set it up by flashing a stimulus to each field. The left hemisphere saw the word sun and the right hemisphere saw a picture of a simple black-and-white line drawing of a traffic light. Our simple question to J.W. was, what did you see? The conversation went like this. MSG, what did you see? J.W., the word sun on the right and a picture of something on the left. 
I don't know what it is, but I can't say it. I, I want to, but I can't. I don't know what it is. MSG. What does it have to do with? JW. I can't tell you that either. It was the word sun on the right and a picture of something on the left. I can't think of what it is. I can see it right in my eyes and I can't say it. MSG. Does it have to do with airplanes? JW. No. MSG. Does it have to do with cars? JW. Yeah. Nodding his head. I think so. It's a tool or something. I don't know what it is and I can't say it. It's terrible. MSG. Are colors involved in it? JW. Yeah. Red, yellow, traffic light? MSG. You got it. The anterior callosum was beginning to yield its secrets. Somehow the right hemisphere was passing forward to its more cognitive parts what we thought were the more abstract aspects of the line drawing. Somehow the various associations yoked to a picture of a black and white drawing of a traffic light were activated, and the parts of the brain supporting those more forward-based functions still had their colossal connections. These associations were prompted by the game of twenty questions I was playing with J.W., the game that was being managed by the left hemisphere. The anterior part of the colossum dealt with higher-order information, not the primitives or the actual stimulus. Again, it wasn't a representation of the actual image. It was other Gnostic associations that the left hemisphere was receiving from the right and trying to find words for. Still, one could argue that nothing was actually being transmitted across the colossum. Instead, maybe the left hemisphere was simply being cued by the isolated right hemisphere in this fashion. When I ask, does it have to do with cars? The right hemisphere hears cars, which are associated with a traffic light, and so nods yes. The left hemisphere notes that the head nods yes and goes along with the cue and says yes. Then I ask, are colors involved? And again, the right hemisphere associates colors with the traffic light and once again nods yes. Now the left hemisphere knows cars and colors. Quickly, all on its own, it figures out what the picture to the opposite hemisphere must have been, just as anyone might have done by listening to the exchange. This argument proposes, then, that nothing actually transferred through the anterior callosum. Instead, perhaps, utterly separate and independent modules are cueing each other, just like two people cue each other with the wink of an eye. But things kept changing with J.W. The traffic light account came early on after his first surgery. As time elapsed, we saw that J.W. could play the 20 questions test with himself without outside direction. Another change came about eight weeks into the period between the first and second surgeries. We flashed the word night to the right hemisphere. Here's the dialogue he had with himself. I have a picture in my mind, but I can't say it. Two fighters in a ring, ancient, wearing uniforms and helmets, on horses, trying to knock each other off. Knights? The word night elicited all of these higher-order associations in the right hemisphere. These were being communicated externally through speech and hearing over to the left, which picked up the parts and then solved the problem. This was extraordinary, and made even more so by the fact that following his second surgery, which completed the full section of the colossum, he could never again succeed in naming words and pictures presented to the right hemisphere. At least, he couldn't until something else changed. But that comes later. Chapter 7 Only the left brain smiles to command. The patients were and are endlessly fascinating. 
and our testing program was incessant. Everyone knew each other, and the patients were as supportive of us as we were of them. My wife Charlotte was a big part of the glue that kept it all working. Patients would ask for her even when it wasn't one of her days to test. On those days, Charlotte would still be part of the group that took a patient out to dinner. Or if there was a birthday for a patient's child, Charlotte would remember and a present would arrive at the lab for the patient to take home. Charlotte's naturally hospitable Texas ways were always there, and just as the patients needed to feel at home and comfortable, so did the visiting scientists. I can't count the number of dinners Charlotte cooked, and all of this while making use of her own training in neuropsychology and doing her own experiments. The social aspects of a life in science are considerable and extremely important if the science deals with people. In the days of the traveling van, she somehow would transform the testing area into a dining room and serve a four-course dinner that miraculously emerged from the small oven and stovetop. It was, like it sounds, magical, as is she. Charlotte had been reading up on a curious fact about the anatomy associated with voluntary versus involuntary smiling. The brain has allocated these two very different skills to different brain systems. When you smile voluntarily, when you are asked to smile, the act is controlled from the left hemisphere. It involves the cortical neurons that cross over to the right half of the face, and also the cortical neurons that cross through the callosum. There they activate other cortical neurons that ultimately activate the left half of the face. This all happens very quickly, such that when that smile comes out, it looks perfectly symmetrical. If a stroke has damaged any part of this cortical pathways network, however, there can be a corresponding droop in the smile, depending upon where the lesion occurs. Spontaneous smiles are different. They utilize a totally different neurologic hardware that is diffuse and arises mostly out of the subcortex and something called the extrapyramidal system. When you hear a good joke, this is the system that kicks in and produces the giggly face. Why is it that Gramps, who suffers from Parkinson's disease, looks so deadpan? Because his disease damages that extrapyramidal system, with the unfortunate result that he can no longer smile spontaneously. Charlotte reasoned that our patients should reveal this if we tested the idea properly. We knew how to ask the question, simply flash a command to either the left or right hemisphere, and record on video the response. By pointing a video camera right at the face, we thought we should be able to pick up a possible difference in which part of the face first responded. A flash of the command to smile to the left hemisphere ought to find the right side of the face commencing the smile, followed by the left side or a flash of the command to the right hemisphere should find the opposite, the left half of the face moving first, if the right hemisphere could carry out the command. Sounds easy, but of course there was a hitch. The video camera we had at the time couldn't capture the frames fast enough to see these split-second differences. I had been toying with the idea of buying a Panasonic digital video disc recorder. Several other projects in the lab, including our brain printing project, needed a way to store large amounts of data. This video camera could not only do that, it could also capture information at a much faster frame speed and could play it back frame by frame. Would this do the trick? Charlotte and I hooked it all up and started testing JW, VP, and DR. It worked perfectly. Take JW as an example. Sure enough, when the command to smile was projected to the left hemisphere, his right half face led the smile followed quickly by the left. It was amazing to see, and we were anxious to see what the right hemisphere could do. To our enormous surprise, 
the right hemisphere couldn't carry out the command, period. Initiating a voluntary smile was not an option for the right hemisphere. Yet it had no problem following the commands wink and blow. At the same time, the patients had no problem spontaneously smiling to a joke or other natural situation. The subcortical control system had not been affected by the split-brain surgery. The Allure of a Research University It was a time in my career when I wondered about a role in leading a larger effort, something much bigger than my own lab. Johns Hopkins had been on the hunt for someone to lead a new mind-brain program they were initiating. After a few visits and late-night phone calls, it didn't work out. In the end, we had different ideas about who should be hired as part of the new effort. I knew at the time that if I started to propose specific names, there would be a reaction. There always is. I'd held off revealing my list of candidates until one night the chair of the committee found me by phone in a hotel in Los Alamos, New Mexico. We were down to the wire, but I reiterated my reluctance to name specific people. While I do act independently, I always consult with my colleagues beforehand. I told the chair that this was what I would do. He persisted, and finally I mentioned a few names. He thanked me, and that was that. I never heard from them again. Still, this had triggered in me an arousal for bigger things. When I finally decided to take an offer from the University of California, Davis, I was ambivalent, not surprising given our life in a beautiful place with a rich and vibrant group of colleagues we enjoyed. When the decision was coming to a head, I remember standing at a phone booth at the Society of Neuroscience meeting in New Orleans and calling to check one last time with the provost of Dartmouth, John Strobin. There are always counteroffers in the academic world. My request was that the Dartmouth Medical School guarantee all of my salary, not just 50% of it. Rough waters were ahead, and that seemed prudent as UC Davis was offering a full salary and more of it. It came down to a $25,000 difference between the two institutions. That's it. If the provost had thrown in another twenty-five k toward my salary support, I would have stayed at Dartmouth. For administrative reasons, too difficult and too unimportant to review, he couldn't do it. Strobin was, at heart, a terrific provost, a bioengineer, who worked with Dave Roberts on the MRI-driven microscope. He wanted to make it work. I thanked him for the call and his efforts and hung up the phone and stared at the ground for a good five minutes. Okay, I thought that's it. We are moving to Davis. I called Charlotte and let her know. She was supportive, as always, yet I could detect the strain. We had lived in our personally designed and built home for only two years. The pinewood-framed windows with hardwood floors and brick fireplaces along with the ten acres of Vermont woods, were all going to be history. We'd started many traditions in our home, the most notable of which was our dinner parties for both family and visiting scientists. Our dining room was a place of joy and intellect. Were we really leaving all of this for California's Central Valley? In an effort to soften the blow, I booked a suite at the Auberge du Soleil in Napa, packed up the family and took off for a quick visit to show how sweet life in California would be. The auberge was everything it was cracked up to be. The Mexican-tiled suites had built-in sofas populated with large pink pillows that were not actually pink, but some new designer color that made us all feel hip. In the dead of winter, we had drinks by the pool, even though it was a bit cool in the January week we visited. Dinners over Trevinia and St. Helena were sublime, as were visits to various vineyards. There was only one problem. 
Napa is not Davis. I should not have shown the family Olympus first. It all worked out gloriously in the end, even with the difficulties of buying a new home when the old home hadn't sold. Throughout the process, and I do mean process, Dartmouth kept smiling benevolently upon us. It is disruptive to move, not only for a family, but also for the institutions involved. The one you are leaving is hopefully not happy about it. But when they are not happy, what do they do? In Dartmouth's case, they threw us a big party and everybody showed up to wish us well, including President James O. Friedman, the provost and the dean. We were flabbergasted and touched, and though we were leaving, our attachment to the institution was reinforced.